I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Ed was just having a little sing of We Don't Need No Education. Oh, that was a different version. You did it as a sort of kind of slightly more country and western version do you think that's what it was i think that's what i like about your musical performances you always put your own stamp on you know (laughs) i I can't help it it's just who i I am artistically i have a lot of integrity exactly um but the reason ed was singing um that song is we are talking education this week and i thought we could start by asking you about your school days so what was your primary school my first school my first primary school was featherbank mount in leeds because i was started in leeds and we had a teacher called mrs wilkinson who was kind of scary biscuits really in what way was she scary biscuits Uh, there's that uh, phrase uh, again (laughs) um she was just old and scary biscuits, really. So what age were you when you moved from Leeds to, to London? Seven. Well, then I went to school in America for a year because my father was teaching in America. So I went to I went to the same – my claim to fame, I went to the same elementary school at almost exactly the same time as Matt Damon. No. <laughs> yes. So what if, what if he – I mean, you know, so, you know, I could have been born. That's basically – I could have been Jason Bourne. <laughs> Have you ever sort of like looked into? I've met Matt Damon once, and, right? And we talked about we talked about the that we both went to this elementary school. We remembered teachers who had been there. It was almost exactly the same time. So then, when so then you moved from there to London, yeah. And how was fitting in because everybody else had been going to school it together? Was fine, for a few years. actually. It was primary school was a nice primary school, and and secondary school. Have a stock comprehensive. Um, you know, is the the adjustment from. Primary secondary school is a big adjustment, uh, but you know uh, I, I enjoyed 
aspects of it. <laughs> are you are you familiar with the film The Breakfast Club? Is that Keanu Reeves or something? No, it's, it's not. It's Emilio Estevez. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But you've got the archetypal high school students and you've got the goth and there's the prom queen nerd. and there's the rebel and then there's the nerd, nerd. and then nerd. there's the bad boy. Nerd. I mean, I'm just bad boy. wondering which, I'm the bad which boy. one of those you nerd. are. Nerd, <laughs> nerd. And what were you then? What yeah. were you sort of smart-ass? I mean... <laughs> I, th- I think I think we can all see that I was the cool rebel kid in a leather yeah, jacket. Yeah, yeah, right. The outsider. Were you? Uh, what, what, what? I was the nerd as well. Of yeah. course, of course, I was. Yeah. And um, who who was your favourite teacher at secondary school? They were all real lefties. It was nineteen eighties in London, so they were all like massive lefties. Yeah. Um. Uh. But um, I remember. <laughs> I remember in one of my early French classes, my my. Uh, my uh, French teacher, Mr. Holly, saying uh, un bonhomme. And he said, for example, he said, Fidel Castro et un bonhomme. <laughs> that was a sign of my school. And we'd have sort of lectures in the, uh, in the uh, sort of assemblies about sort of Nicaragua and solidarity. But look, there were like, really, but joking apart, there were really great, inspiring teachers maths, physics, English. I'm still in touch with Chris Dunn, who is my uh, English teacher for A level, and uh, so, so you know, really, the, the, honestly, really, really inspiring teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to, you know, when you said what's your favourite teacher, to be fair, uh, actually across the board, I had re- like physics, which I'm not got no real aptitude for. I managed to get an A remarkably in my physics A level, but I've no sort of natural ability for it. It was just because I had great teaching. A woman called Miriam Rosen taught me. So you're quite animated. So school days were good days. For you yeah the teaching was great we haven't really said much about your school days i figured out where our music teacher mrs friends kept the report paper and she would let us go into her room and um and practice music during break times so i nicked a load of report paper and i would write my own reports and then when when i get the school report i'd take the staples out i'd throw away the teacher's reports which were terrible because i was lagging so far behind and i'd replace them with my own but i i would try to keep an element of realism so i'd give myself an a minus and say jeffrey's very bright but he could really try a bit harder and i remember getting in trouble from my parents for reports that I'd written for myself. How, how, often, how long do you do that for? A couple of years. How extraordinary. It's terrible, isn't it? That is an extraordinary story. I'm a very devious person. Not everybody did that, let me just say. <laughs> Why are we talking about this? Because we're talking about education, and there's so much to talk about in education, but so, so you know, this is not the only education episode we'll do, but one area to start with, which is what we're talking about this week, is curriculum, the curriculum. And what, what, essentially, what do kids get taught in schools and how could it be better? And this is partly prompted by the fact that there's been a real cutting back of creative arts subjects in schools. The BBC did a recent survey showing nine out of 10 schools had cut back on creative arts subjects. Um, we've got the lowest number taking a creative arts subject at GCSE for a decade. Uh, there's research showing we've got 1,700 fewer drama teachers. Um, and, and I think it goes to a big issue about education in this country, which is, is it too narrow? Uh, do we test too much? Do we have a, um, a, a system that is still built for an age when people left school at 16, i.e. GCSEs, which were O-levels and CSEs when I was taking them, not when you were, of course, was your borderline millennial. Yeah. But, you know, 
should we be just having an exam at 18? I mean, there's just a huge number of issues about what I, you know, what people get taught and whether, you know, whether school's too boring in some ways, whether it's just too, can be too rote. And, and you know, the the sort of figure of Michael Gove hovers a little bit over this conversation, I think. Oh, that's spooky. We're going to be talking to um, James Graham, who is a playwright that some people will have heard of and a writer. He wrote a quite successful play called uh, This House. He's got a play on in the West End at the moment called Ink about Rupert Murdoch. He's got one called Labour of Love about the Labour Party. Um, he's, you know, really well regarded as a, one of the best young playwrights around. He comes from Mansfield and he really cares about what's happening to creative subjects in schools. He'll be talking about that. Then we're going to be talking to Jez Bennett, who's a head teacher at Elizabeth Woodville School in Northamptonshire. He's also a musician with an MA in software design, so he covers all the bases. And uh, he's going to be talking about something that they're doing, which is they're piloting what they call a National Baccalaureate for England, which is a broader curriculum. And then we're going to be talking to Madeleine Holt, an education campaigner and a co-founder of an organisation called Rescue Our Schools. And coming into pitch ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we are joined by comedian Alice Fraser, who is not only very funny, but her training is in the law. Good. Yeah. What about our reasons to be cheerful then? What's yours? Um, My reasons to be cheerful is I managed to spread some fake news. Yes. So I was in on my own the other night, and I I remembered that I'd seen that picture of the Spice Girls. Yes. Around Jerry Halliwell's yes. house. So I thought, I'm just going to start some fake news and see how far it gets. So I did a tweet saying, a friend of mine who works in television tells me that the Spice Girls reunion project is a big talent TV show and each Spice Girl is going to pick her own replacement. So in other words, they're finding a next generation of baby gingers. It's quite a good idea. Yeah. So I tweeted this as if it was a fact and I've spent the whole week fending off tweets and messages from Spice Girls fans who are horrified by the idea and I've, I mean it's not happening as far as I know I just made it up yeah I mean I think I think to, to mount a defense of you for a minute compared to sort of Donald Trump's lies I mean yeah. I think you're still in the sort of Vauxhall conference you know what I mean I think you, <laughs> you, you, you know I mean that in a positive you've, way you've, in a positive you've, sense you've got to start somewhere though don't well, you well no but I mean I think you, I don't think you're yet a sort of threat to world stability okay or, or, or sort of you know nuclear war yeah, okay well you, you just give me some time you watch me go <laughs> What's um? What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is that I'm gonna I've booked tickets to go to America. We're going to America. No, me and George Ezra. No, no, actually, <laughs> no. Me and my children are going to America for Easter. Great, um, because I have always wanted to take them to my uh, to see the Boston Red Sox, my baseball, the baseball team I support. And um, I've started to induct them into baseball. And so we've the, the season begins around Easter, so we're going. And I, I prompted Did you part- get the impression they're going along with the baseball thing willingly? Are they into it? Is it something being foisted upon them? Well, I, I showed them one, the most famous Boston Red Sox game in history, 2004, when they came back against the New York Yankees, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and they were quite interested. And then I tried to show the sort of next game the next night, and they got a bit bored. Um, softly, 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 softly. It wasn't. It was not too softly. It wasn't right. softly, softly enough. Uh, so I think they're quite interested. But you know, we're going to um, spend some time in New York, which oh, would be fun. So envious. Uh, and Chicago. Aha! So you could pop around and see my mother-in-law. Exactly. You could go for a sandwich at my brother-in-law's food fat truck, shallot. the Fat Shallot. Yeah, and that'd be quite fun. Boys' trip. Will you bring me something back. 
Like a sandwich. <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. I'm delighted to say that we're now joined by James Graham, a very successful young playwright who's got two shows in the West End at the moment, Inc. about Rupert Murdoch and Labour of Love, a play about the Labour Party. James, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Um, so tell us a little bit, first of all, about your background, where you went to school and, and how you first got interested in theatre and the arts. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I didn't really come from a, a particularly theatrical family. My mum worked in a school in a warehouse and my dad worked for the council. But I was just I was just really lucky. I went to a comprehensive school, a state school in, um, in Mansfield, quite a huge one. Um, and, you know, an area that was suffering from post-industrial decline. There was lots of poverty. But for whatever reason, there was a philosophy in the school from the headmaster down to the teachers that uh, the arts and in particular drama um, should be accessible, uh, not just as a treat, but actually as a way of, of helping with some of the social and emotional problems in the community by getting by getting kids on stage, telling stories, introducing them to texts, new and classics. I know for absolute certain without the um, the commitment from the school and the passion of my my drama teacher in particular, Mr. Humphrey, who um, who introduced me to all these bits of new British writing and international writing, that I just wouldn't, I wouldn't be um, a playwright. I wouldn't be talking to you now. I wouldn't have those, those shows on in the West End and be able to bring my perspective from my community to, um, to a wider audience. So yeah, I was really lucky. So wh- what was the first uh, th- you know, play or theatre thing that you were involved in at school? Oh God, I did loads of really bad musicals where I couldn't sing for a start. I was I was actually in Oliver and I couldn't even sing, so someone else had to sing for me. But even you know, even just that, even the experience of the collective experience of getting together with your with your peers and interrogating uh, a story and all that you have to do when you do that in terms of you know unpacking your empathy towards a certain character and understanding a character's motivations um walking in the shoes of, of as a character that with a very different experience from yours being introduced to worlds and environments um in all sorts of plays and shows and musicals that you would normally have access to i just think it's the best way to expand uh, your perspective and your horizon and, and introduce you to different cultures and communities and, and people suffering and working under different conditions. You've recently said that the main issue facing the sector is arts education and that drama is disappearing by stealth in state schools. Could could you explain that and tell us about the scale of the problem? For me, uh, it snuck up quite quickly and quite quietly. But obviously, I think for those working in schools, I've got a lot of friends around the country who work in different um, disciplines within uh, state schools. Um, they've noticed it for a while. And the uh, first I heard about it anecdotally, I was with some friends who are PE teachers up in Sheffield, and um, they just mentioned to me that drama had accidentally gone. And I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Is it, how, how has it gone? And they told me that a lot of their drama school teachers in the past couple of years, when they've retired, they've just not been replaced. And so I started investigating this further with other drama teachers. And yes, resources are dwindling. The amount of time that's being allocated to these subjects are dwindling. Um, and so, you know, we have the, we have now the, uh, the statistics we know from various different reports that nine out of 10 schools are, you know, lim- have had to cut back on the amounts of arts they, they're teaching. We've lost 1,700 drama school teachers since 2010. I think there's about a quarter less um, uptake in state schools for, for A-level arts. And I suppose what, um, what really frightens me is that we already had 
um, a mobility problem in in the sector in the arts that too much of our acting on on screen as you will have seen uh, too much of the people filming directing uh, working in theater and in particular writing was coming from an era ever narrower band of, of society and that's before these these cuts to state education began and state education was always the equalizer it was always no matter what your background you know you got uh, at least a, a moderate inter- introduction into um into drama into play so if that's disappearing i think we're not even going to know the impact of that for another for another decade when suddenly all of our national narratives and our, and our stories are being diminished and do you get the impression it's financial to do with cuts made in education or do you get the impression it's ideological in terms of what goes into the curriculum it's probably both, but we know that it is. I mean, we know it is philosophical for a start because the the new qualification, the EBAC, doesn't recognise the importance of arts in terms of its measurement of schools. And you know, it, it obviously, it, that the EBAC was introduced for a good reason. We all understand what that was. There was a, there was um, diminishing standards in terms of literacy and mathematics, and it was right that that be tackled. But I, I think it's fundamentally. Um, uh, uh, short-term thinking and uh, and false thinking to think that the health of your school can can um, stay strong and survive if you're giving in no way, shape or form any creative or artistic uh, means of expression to your kids, um, even if they don't want to become like me, a writer or an actor, or if they, if they don't want to direct at movies, it's just it's just what that what that process does um, be outside of academia. Um, you know, the, the mental and emotional uh, health that comes from, from these kind of subjects. And this is always the problem with this, this level of argument is it always sounds quite airy-fairy and hard to prove, it's hard to measure. But, um, but we just know, we just know that if you're, if you're denying this type of communication, this type of access to anything, music, painting, photography, that there's a part of people you're, you're shutting down. And we need that, whether we're going to be financiers or bankers or politicians or anything, we need that part of ourselves to be um, nurtured. And there's a great irony to this, isn't there? Because it's not like the private schools are cutting back on these things. I mean, you know what I mean? It's not like the private no, exactly. schools are all saying, oh, well, look, you know, we don't want people to be actors. We don't want people to do creative art subjects. None of these things matter. No, that's exactly right. So if they can see the value and the worth in in making sure that the future captains of industry or the future business leaders do Shakespeare, um, because it's going to be uh, be viable to to their career and to the school's reputation, then then hello, yeah, exactly. We should be waking up to this. You've identified what I also fear, which is that there, there's a two tier system here now. Is was of course. As, as school plays um, get cut back in state schools and trips to the theatre uh, get cut back and get squeezed. Meanwhile, on the other side of the tracks, they're, they're, just, they're just investing in them and they, they have the resource and the facilities. So, you know, if in, in, the, in, the, in the plays in the West End in the future, are they all going to be from the perspective of people who are lucky enough to have, um, have that private education, which would be devastating? Now, we've got a thing called the Jeffocracy, which is uh, slightly <laughs> slightly uh, fear-inducing, which is Jeff ruling the, <laughs> ruling the country. I think it, it's utopian. Ed thinks it's dystopian. Yeah, exactly. If, if, if in the Jeffocracy you were to be made the culture secretary or the culture secretary and the education secretary, what would you do? 
Uh, well, immediately, immediately make sure that uh, uh, the arts were recognised in the EBAC. There's absolutely no reason uh, why that's why that shouldn't be the case. Um, I, I don't even think it's financial. I think it's purely philosophical. Um, so they should they should immediately take into account at least one arts subject, whatever it is, and have that as a standard of measurement for how successful the school is teaching its kids. Um, and then, you know, again, it's a hard and unpopular argument to make often in the times of austerity. But we know that it's not subsidy when you spend money on the on the arts it's an investment for every one quid you spend uh, investing in the arts you get five back to the treasury um i spent a lot of time in hull this year in the city of culture um and the, the economic benefits of art has been indisputable on jobs and community so i think you probably just need to throw a bit of money from education into making sure kids can put on school plays can go to the theater can make their own work um, and even if you don't buy the eerie fairy stuff about how important it is to the emotional health of the country, it's 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 baffling to me as it's one of the last things we do really well in this country without our military and without our sports teams. We're still the guys out there who are touring work around the world, who are winning the Oscars, who are whose work is read in schools across the world. It's you know, people want to listen to our stories and it's it's one of the last megaphones that we have as a community and i don't know why the short-term thinking is that that's going to get quieter and quieter it makes no sense and to be clear about this ink and this house and labor of love and all of the things that you've done they wouldn't be there if it hadn't been for the education you had and for your teacher mr humphrey and his philosophy no, 100% absolutely not. And it's an easy thing to say, hard to prove. But no, I, I know it. If I hadn't been introduced to to writing that excited me to plays, to films, to movies, to if he hadn't have unlocked that part of me that could create and imagine, then definitely I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here and those plays wouldn't be here. James, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. So we're joined now by Jez Bennett, who's the head teacher at Elizabeth Woodville School in Northamptonshire. Jez, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Tell us to begin with, um, since our focus is on the curriculum and creativity, what you think the current state of play is in our school system around the curriculum that we're teaching our kids, whether creativity is getting a proper look in uh, and and what needs doing? I think we're at quite a, a concerning moment. We've got quite a debate going on about whether our curriculum should be focused on the core, you know, the English, the maths, the science, and, and to what extent we should make other elements, including the arts and technology, compulsory or optional. And we're finding increasingly that those areas are being squeezed and they're mainly being squeezed for two reasons. The BBC did a survey a couple of weeks ago about this, and they found that the, the financial constraints on schools, alongside the accountability pressures, are squeezing, to a large extent, arts out of the curriculum, particularly at Key Stage 4, so sort of GCSE level. We know that the data tells us that there are fewer and fewer students taking, you know, for example, art and, and drama and uh, music GCSEs, the figures sort of up to 25% in drama since about 2010. And uh, the flip side is we've seen an increase in, in subjects like history and geography, which have been uh, increasingly um, favoured, I suppose, by uh, various government initiatives and accountability measures. Um, and I'm just really concerned as a, you know, from a music background, I was a, a, did music at university, I still play, I still sing. Um, and, and I see that having a really adverse impact in school. Um, 
particularly at a time when we are, are encouraging social mobility, aren't we? And we want all students to have an equal opportunity, a comprehensive, broad education. And I think those very students that need that more than others are going to suffer the most from the various pressures that we, we find ourselves faced with. And presumably one of the points here is that this isn't just bad because people aren't doing the creative subjects which you know have merit in themselves but this also kind of has an impact on their on people's general engagement with education is that right that's true i mean we know that the arts are important for all sorts of reasons you know lots and lots of skills that we learn by uh, taking art subjects including sort of communication and expression and self-control and confidence all those kind of things um, what's interesting is when I've talked to my students about why the arts are important to them, particularly those that are taking, say, GCSEs, they all, without exception, have talked about mental health. They've all talked about the way the arts give them something that they really enjoy, that it, and they don't use the word easier, but something that they can connect with more uh, readily, if you like. Uh, it's almost that little respite in the curriculum. I don't think those subjects are easy at all, but those students have particular strengths and particular ways of learning that the arts provide for them and help them. Um, and, and they've all identified the stresses and, and pressures that, that young people are feeling under. Um, I, I don't know if you read the um, the all-party parliamentary group report into creative health and creative arts and, and, and health that came out, I think, last year. But there's a really strong connection, isn't there, between the arts and well-being. Uh, and I'm concerned about that element too. And in terms of your school, you're one of the pilot areas for something called the National Baccalaureate for England. Can you tell us what that is, uh, how it came about, and, and, and whether it addresses some of these concerns? Yeah, so the National Baccalaureate really um, came a number of years ago in response to um, the government's um, e-baccalaureate initiative, which was the e-bac uh, is, a, is a performance measure. It's a way of measuring a certain set of GCSE subjects, and it doesn't really tell us anything we didn't know already. It's not a qualification. Nobody gets a certificate in the e-bac. It's just a way of measuring a specific core curriculum for schools. But well, we feel that that's not enough. We feel that a true baccalaureate gives uh, recognition for the students' wider achievement. So it's a, it's a universal framework giving um, sort of recognition to the full range of their achievements and their experiences, the qualities that children develop alongside the qualifications. Qualifications are important, but so too are the qualities they, they develop in their time at school. So a um, group of schools, group of um, professionals from education sector have got together and, and, and there's general consensus that uh, we want our children to have a rounded whole education that we want them to develop all sorts of skills, but also their qualities. What is very difficult, of course, is saying that this is the way you should do that. So we're a pilot school for the National Baccalaureate, and that's a trust that's been set up to promote this. And essentially at this stage, we're just devising what it might look like. So we have our way of doing it. We have a personal development programme that all of our sick formers are involved with, and that recognises you know, all sorts of different things, from leadership to um, physical activity to community involvement, work experience. And, and they're able to sort of collect all that evidence together and, uh, and get some recognition for it. We've got other schools around the country doing doing similar things and we, we're coming together and saying, well, this works, this doesn't work. And it's very much in its pilot phase at the moment. How would your national baccalaureate be different from the EBAC, just to sort of uh, sort of crunch this down for a second? The, uh, the EBAC basically says you've achieved a level four or five in, in these five subjects. 
at GCSE, and that's it. And that's English, English maths, English uh, maths, science, language, a language science. and a humanities, geography or history. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, and yours. Uh, so, so to get an, at the moment, we're looking at level three. So that's the sort of A level equivalent. You could do any core learning in that. You, it's a, it's a universal um, award, so it could be that you're doing a technical qualification or a vocational qualification, as long as it's got a certain weight and and, and breadth. Um, plus, you've also done some project work. You've done an independent study. Plus, you've done a personal development program, including some of those areas: creative arts, um, community involvement. And if you qualify for all of those, um, you know, all of those uh, areas, you'd get a, a, a new award. It really is. A, it's a wrapper award, much more in, in keeping with the kind of award you get with the International Baccalaureate. And, and they've been involved with us in developing that, it. And that happens in the rest of Europe, but that happens in the rest of Europe. That's the sort of much broader educate sort of, yeah. set of ex- education exams that people do up to the age of 18, basically. Yeah, International Baccalaureate. That's right. And you can and lots of countries around the world use that International Baccalaureate qualification. So ours is not a identical but it's a much more rounded full picture of a whole child's achievement and i know it's uh, just a pilot at the moment but what have your learnings been so far what works what doesn't work well what's been really interesting is that students um and when we, we've asked students about what they've learned through this, they've said it's just increased my confidence. It's increased my ability to go on interview, my work, my employment skills. Um, I never thought I would want to study. So, um, for example, we make them study something in great depth, the subject of their choice. It might be, you know, the rate of um, coronary disease in the in the village, or it might be um, one one person's done. Um, looking at the relationship between spending and, and success in German football leagues. Or, you know, so a subject of their choice, and they've really gone into great depth, and, and a lot of them have been quite resistant, but by doing that, the skills and, and qualities they've developed, they're saying are really, really helpful um, for the next stage, whether it be university um, or employment. So they, they, they pick these these topics and then sort of go deep. And of course, like any topic, you dig deep enough into it, it touches on all these other subjects. Is is that how it works? Yeah, that's right. They get coaching, they get tutorials through, through staff. Um, universities really like that style of learning. We're using one called the Extended Project Qualification, which has been around for a few years. But it's very well respected because it gives students the ability to talk in great depth and show that they're different. They've studied something, they've used some of those skills they might need later on in life in project development for example um and it, it gives them an edge um and in a time of great competition uh, and and you know challenges in 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 the employment sector um that's really really helpful for them so they've been really really positive and also giving something back to their community so all of our students you know they might be hosting a um a tea, we did a tea party for uh, the Queen's last birthday, for example, and older people from the village come and, 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 and they've set that up, done it all themselves. Uh, they've developed leadership skills. They've also developed an understanding of where that particular generation are. Um, so, so really, really beneficial for them in lots of different reasons. And Jez, let's go through some of the other problems. Do, do, we, do we test our kids too much in, our, in Britain? I mean, one thing that, you know, we still have GCSEs at the age of 16. Then we have AS, well, sorry, A-levels at the age of 18. Um, you know, that's kind of like a spatchcock of a sort of old system when kids used to leave school at 16. When I was uh, taking exams, it was O-levels and CSEs uh, with A-levels. I mean, does that make sense? Should we be narrowing? Should we be having fewer tests? We, we've certainly over-test. 
Uh, and there aren't many countries in the world that test as much as we do. We, we really stand alone in that respect. Um, assessment, of course, is important, but so is trust in the education sector, in the professionals to know where children are. We have had previously um, links, for example, with schools in Sweden. And, of course, there are national exams in Sweden, but they're much, much more um, narrow. There are only a couple of subjects at the age of 16, and most of the testing is done at 18. Um, we want our children to continue in education. We have to continue in some kind of education to 18. So I, you know, I, I think that, that exams at, at 16, are, they're losing their currency for me. And I think in the, in, in the long term, that's probably where we should go. We should look to, to remove those or some of those and put more trust rather than less, which is what we've been doing in the education profession to really promote uh, and, and understand where children are. Clearly, we, we've, um, there are reasons why that change has happened. There are reasons why we've got new GCSEs at the moment, uh, because, uh, you know, politically, we're not sure that schools have been doing the, perhaps the right thing by their students all the time. But uh, longer term, it's got to be the way forward for me. And what about the content of what we're teaching our kids? I don't just mean um, the sort of subjects, but I mean, are we teaching them, and you've hinted at this already, are we teaching them for the sort of 21st century world or the 19th century world, I, I sort of somehow, I somehow worry that, that 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 some of the content of what we do can feel like it won't really prepare them for the world they're entering into. Does that does that make sense to you? Absolutely, and we, we've got a model, haven't we, of education that's very Victorian in its content. If you look at the curriculum from about 1905 or 6 to uh, compare it to now. Um, there's very, very little different. I think, I think the difference is um, today we teach technology and in about 1905 they were teaching housewifery. Um, but everything else is pretty much the same. And that that's, can't be right, can it? Now, it's, it's true, isn't it, that the subjects that we have are hooks to hang the learning on. All of the learning that we need to be you know, active citizens and, and successful in later life, we can hang them on a geography hook or a history hook or whatever it is, or a technology hook. But to a certain extent, it doesn't matter what the hooks are. And I think that we um, need to do some serious um, thinking about how we, uh, the constraints that we've played on the, placed on the curriculum by saying that it has to look like this. Um, so, for example, we had a group of uh, Chinese teachers come to visit us uh, last term and they were coming to look at drama and they were coming to look at careers education because they've recognised that, you know, they, they're not two areas they particularly um, do in, in China. This was sort of Shanghai district. You know, Shanghai, one of the areas that nationally we've been looking to for the quality of their English, of quality of their maths and their science curriculum. Absolutely right that we learn from them. But they're coming to learn from us from the creative curriculum. They're coming to learn from us the way we prepare children for the future working life. And that dialogue is really important. And we shouldn't narrow ourselves, constrain ourselves to the kind of curriculum we might have been offering you know, 100 years ago, which I think is really still where we are. We often have this debate, don't we, between which is more important, knowledge or skills? And um, I remember Michael Gove actually talking, um, our friend Michael Gove talking about learning a musical instrument. Which do you learn first? You said you, he said you learn your scales first and then you learn to play your pieces. It's a bit like saying I learn my words and my grammar before I learn to speak. And it's ridiculous. I don't know whether Michael Goes played an instrument, but, you know, as a musician, of course the scales are important. But you do that alongside the enjoyment and the pleasure of just playing as you do with language. You learn to speak and you learn your grammar and your vocabulary as you go along. Knowledge and skills are both clearly important and we do them together alongside developing the attitudes and the attributes that mean we can be successful in the future.
So, so Jez, we've got this thing uh, on our podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is basically Jeff becoming the ruler of the country, if not the world. Yeah, uh, that sounds like a great yeah, idea. Yeah, well, I don't it, know. It I'm not sure. The jury's <laughs> out on that question. But if we were to, I'll make, have the jury slung it, into jail. If we, if we were to make, um, if we were to make you the education secretary in the Jeffocracy, what would you do? I'll give you two things I would do. I would abolish Ofsted. And I would champion the arts. Um, And the reason for abolishing Ofsted is not because I don't think we should have accountability. We're a public sector. It's right that we have accountability, that we have an inspector of some description. But I think Ofsted is so tainted in the eyes of the education sector. It's a damaged brand. And we really need to be careful um, about the, the way we measure um, what what good schools? Can I give you a little example? Um, um, who's the best English batsman? How, how are you going to measure that? Well, you might measure it by 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 average number of runs scored. You might measure it by the difficulty of getting him out. You might measure it by strike rate. You might measure it by the opposition he was playing. There is no one answer to that. Any kind of measurement like that is complex, and schools are even more complex than that. What we have is a generation of school leaders who have been so pressured um, by Ofsted, or, or they fit not by Ofsted, but they feel the pressure of Ofsted, they fear the accountability, that it changes their behaviours all the time. And whenever you go into a school, uh, a room of head teachers, often there'll be conversations about, are you expecting Ofsted this week or that week? I don't know if you remember the um, Faulty Towers episode where the um, the hotel inspector turns up. Do you remember that one? Yeah. And, yeah. and Basil spends the whole time buttering up the wrong guy. And, uh, and, 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 and you wonder if we're doing the things that we do in school for Ofsted or because, you know what, we genuinely believe they're the right things to do. We should worry less about Ofsted. It's right that we have an inspection and accountability, but it needs to be intelligent. And we should do the things that we believe in because they're important. So that's the first thing I would do. Second thing I would do, I'd just say... Let's do more arts. Let's let's value all the things that the arts teach us. And that's an easy sell to people like me and Ed. But for there's a type of person, I guess, who's more conservatively minded and really values lists of kings and, and queens. If, if you do more of one thing, you, you've got to do less of something else. And it's a debate, isn't it? But at the moment, the arts have been totally squeezed out of that debate. In fact, we haven't really had it. You know, remember the, remember the 2012 Olympics? You know, the thing that we remember most for a lot of people would, apart from the sport, would be that opening ceremony. Um, it was a celebration, wasn't it, of British literature and theatre and music and dance and technology. And if we were to host such an event again, do you think our ability to produce a similar spectacle would be because of our education system or in spite of our education system? And I feel that's a challenge to us, isn't it? To think about what kind of education system do we want that really celebrates and develops those areas in addition, perhaps, to, uh, to those other subjects. That's great. Jez, thank you so much for joining us. It's really, really inspiring. Uh, I'm going to come and do another A-level with you and Jeff's going to come too. You're welcome. Come and do music. Yeah, I want to do a baccalaureate. Oh, do a baccalaureate. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> nice to speak to you.
So listening to that with us is Madeline Holt, education campaigner and co-founder of Rescue Our Schools. Uh, Madeline, hello. Hi. Uh, can, you, can you tell us about Rescue Our Schools? What is it? What's your involvement? Um, yeah, sure. I set it up with um, some other parents in 2016 and the, the cue for it was the announcement from the government that uh, they wanted to force all schools to academise. So that was the sort of straw that bo- broke the camel's back as far as we were concerned. But we were bothered by it a lot more, really. We felt the schools were becoming exam factories, they were becoming joyless, and that in a way, uh, lots of politicians were talking about how um, children should be punished in them almost, that, that there shouldn't be any kind of interest from them or any ownership of their own learning. And we were really bothered about the mental health consequences as well, with all sorts of reports coming out all the time, saying that um, children and young people were starting to say how stressed they were becoming by the system. And so we wanted to do something, we felt the parents needed a bit more of a voice, so we set up um, Rescue Our Schools, which has become a sort of Facebook page and a chance for us to speak publicly and submit evidence to um, inquiries and the like. And what we, we're doing really is trying to get more informed, inform more parents about what we think is going wrong, why it's going wrong, how many of the reforms that have been imposed on schools recently have been done so without proper evidence. And most importantly for me, I think we need to know about the alternatives and we really need to to get educated about schools that are doing it differently. And there are plenty of examples, both in, in England, actually, and particularly abroad. We're becoming kind of outliers in going in a really different direction. Can I just ask a very basic question, which is, is our curriculum fit for purpose? And if it isn't, in what way isn't it? My answer would be no, it's not. And that's both primary and secondary. And just picking up on what Jez said, I would argue that there's two reasons why it's not fit for purpose. The first is that it's too narrow. And the second is the reason it's so narrow is because the accountability measures that are in place are just looking at the very few subjects. You know, for example, in primary, they're just looking at maths and English. And they're using the scores in maths and English now to judge schools. So that's the sort of toxic link. If you broke that link so that the scores that that, that schools were coming up with uh, were not used to say this school's a good school, this school's an outstanding school, this school you know needs to be academised or whatever, always requires improvement and so on, then you take a lot of the pressure away from teachers to teach the test. So the evolution of this, just for our listeners, is Michael Gove introduces the e-back in 2014. That's got a focus on sort of five so-called key subjects. Even with the new measure, the thing called Progress 8 in the jargon, there's extra weight put on English, maths, foreign language, humanities, science. And that's, so it's not a coincidence that we've seen this decline in creative arts, drama, art subjects, that whole range of subjects. That's that's the basic story about what's going on, whatever we think of it. That's that's the story of what's going on. Is that right? That's the story in secondary. Um, But there's another story in primary where Michael Gove... uh, decided to make SATs a lot harder. So he felt that the way that we needed to kind of move on internationally and get onto a level pegging with other countries that are doing well in these things called PISA tests was to make all exams a hell of a lot harder. So he did it in SATs and he did it also in GCSEs and in A-levels. But the problem with that is there's absolutely no evidence that if you make an exam harder, students developmentally will catch up. 
And so what you got with the SATs and what you're starting to see now with some GCSEs is lots and lots of kids are failing. And when the SATs were first introduced, nearly half of all kids were told they were not secondary school ready, which I just think is, is, is criminal. It destroys their confidence as learners at the age of just 10 or 11. And, and tell us about the experience of Britain compared to other countries. I mean, are, are we an outlier? In what way are we an outlier? We're an outlier in the way that, as Jez says, that we are testing so much. We're doing even more testing than the States, and that is saying something. And we are an outlier in having such a punitive system in terms of linking those test scores to the way schools are judged. And we're now starting to see this um, pressure to teach in a certain way. So not just the narrow subjects, you know, the, what perceived as being the hard subjects, which I don't personally do, think is true, but we are hearing a lot of stuff from the current government, from the schools minister, Nick Gibb, about how he doesn't like project-based learning. Uh, he want, He's very keen on something called teacher-led instruction, which is about kind of much more chalk and talk, teachers being at the front of the class and saying, you know, here's a load of facts and you've got to absorb them and remember them. There's been a, a huge uh, reduction in the amount of coursework at GCSE. So now it's basically uh, all exams, probably a bit like when we were at school. So there's these multiple pressures, which actually mean that we are kind of going back in time. And if you look at the international picture, even as Jez said, in areas like China, South Korea, Singapore, these countries are thinking really hard now about how they can ensure that their children are not robots because they're saying, do you know mm. what? The economy is going to be mm. dominated by robots in certain areas. And so we need to pull out the really human skills uh, such as creative thinking, critical thinking, problem solving, being able to work in a team. And these, some of these skills have been looked at for a long time in countries like Finland, Alberta and Canada. Can I ask you about Finland? Because I feel there was a period maybe three, four years ago when I'd constantly be reading, Finland is the place that knows how to do education. Is that the case? And if so, what are they doing that's so different to everybody else? Well, for a long time, they've been uh, focusing on a much broader curriculum and using all sorts of different techniques. So project-based learning is one of them. And it's fair to say there isn't a lot of evidence that it necessarily works. But on the other hand, if you do it well then it can be very successful. Is there evidence to say it doesn't work, though? Uh, it's a very mixed picture. And I think it's true to say that in the past, perhaps in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of project-based learning, which was a bit woolly. Right. And unfortunately, because of that, that's now been used by the sort of more traditional group to say, oh, it's a load of old rubbish. Actually, the schools like School 21, which is a free school out in Stratford in East London, which is doing project-based learning, but it's very intelligently thought through. It's very rigorously assessed. So it's like anything. You can do teacher-led instruction badly. Yeah. It's just how you do it. And I'm right in thinking also, I don't want to go on a complete Finland diversion here, but that they it's a very competitive, teaching is a very competitive profession to get into in mm -hmm. Finland. I mean, the ratio of applications to whether you get, I mean, it's like it's exalted as the most important profession almost in the country. It's it's a, a very um, tough apprenticeship. I think you do a four-year degree, if I'm right. Um, and as you say, it's really respected. It's very well paid. And teachers are trusted. So what you don't have is this kind of climate of distrust that we've had for a number of years now. You know, this is not just something that's developed over the last seven years or so. Uh, instead, you have a confidence that teachers can do their own assessment. So, so I'm not saying 
tests aren't worth it or assessment isn't worth it. Of course it is. It's really, really important. It's how you do it. So they have a lot of time, actually, in the average finished day where teachers, when they've stopped doing their teaching, they sit around and they look at at students' work. And it's, it's a very individualistic approach. I suppose the conclusion from that is if we want to treat our children as individuals, you have to have a much more individual way of rating how they're doing. And we have a standardised system now which kind of reduces kids to scores on a kind of production line. Let, let me just sort of challenge that slightly. I mean, one of the things that has happened compared to 20 years ago is the transformation in London schools Okay, that was about investment, the London Challenge and all that. But it was also about recognising that when schools were failing, something had to be done about it. I mean, how do you not throw the baby out with the bathwater in this? I, I totally agree. I mean, I don't know about your school, but at my school, there were plenty of kids who fell through the net. And that was not right. And I can think of about Probably ten, that's right. Yeah, I can think of about 10 kids in my class who could have gone on to university and didn't. And so there is a social justice dimension to a lot of what has driven this 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 really um, precise accountability framework. And I get that. And I think that the a lot of these initiatives are very well-meaning. Uh, and the focus on discipline is really important because I'm sure your classes are the same as my classes. All it takes is one kid to mess around yeah, and you definitely. can't concentrate. And attendance. Jeff, for example. <laughs> I'm sure you didn't mess around, did you? I played truant. All oh, right, okay. At least well, you weren't it. disrupting it for everyone now, else. Now if you play truant, your school will get downgraded. I mean, you've, you know, there are really tough requirements now in terms of attendance. And I think that's good, basically. Yeah. There's ways to do it. There's ways of squaring the circle. And and. If you look at countries that are, that are doing it well, mm. which we don't do enough of, we're really mm. myopic. There's, uh, for example, New Zealand's a really good example. They've just got rid of standardised testing in primary schools with the, the new Labour government there. Um, but what they've been doing there for a number of years is this thing called national sampling. So they'll pick a random group of kids. They'll come in. These kids will do a test. It's often about much, much deeper skills. And also testing knowledge, because I'm not saying knowledge isn't important. But those kids can't prepare for that test. And they'll do it over you know, a whole load of schools. And then they'll get a really good national picture of how a country's doing in, in certain areas. And we do that at the moment in primary science. And so... I'm part of a group called More Than a Score, which is a sort of coalition of parents groups and academics and, and mental health professionals. And we're all saying, look, there's loads of different ways of doing it. We're not against assessment. We're just in favour of a much more intelligent form of assessment. And even so-called, and sorry to go into the technicalities, value added, which shows the progress that kids make, children, young people make from entering secondary school into GCSEs or whatever, that doesn't do it for you either. It's how it's done, because the problem at the moment is you get these flight paths. So, for example, um, I don't know if you know, but the, late, the government's latest wheeze is, is introducing something called baseline testing of four-year-olds. So if it goes through, four-year-olds within the right. first half term of their school will be having an iPad test of their literacy and numeracy. And that, that test score will be used to predict how they do in SATs in, in year six. So the danger is that those kids, if they do badly, schools will be under huge pressure to show progress. So they'll stick the kids on differentiated tables. So if you do badly in that test, and, and it's quite possible you will if you're summer-born or you're a boy or you're from a less privileged background or you special needs or have English as an additional language, all those groups we know do badly in these tests because they've been tried before, then the danger is you'll be put on, on a lower ability table and you will stay on that and the expectations of your teachers will be lowered throughout your primary education. And the really scary thing is then those SATS results 
will be used as they are now to predict how well uh, teachers reckon you're going to do in GCSE, which is part of the whole Progress 8 measure. And I just think it's it's just not right to, to, to put kids on these predetermined paths when there's absolutely no evidence in terms of child development that people develop in a straight line. They don't. And is part of the issue here what we think education is for? I mean, I can't help feeling that it is that. It's absolutely that. And what we're trying to do is another thing, another campaigning element, is um, something else we're trying to get off the ground. We've, we've written a book called Education Forward, which is a whole collection of people. I've written something on, on alternatives to SATs, as, as with my kind of rescue schools more than the score hat on. We're trying to argue that with Labour talking about a national education service, which, which I personally think is a brilliant idea, especially for this current generation of kids who have been so impoverished in terms of their experience, that... Um, the time has come for us to sit down and say, what is the point of education? You know, what's it all about? The traditional model has been arguing, you know, it's about um, trying to encourage economic growth. I don't hold to that argument. Um, I actually you know, don't think that we should be thinking about economic growth. We need to be thinking about sustainability. For me, the question is, how do we make people fulfilled citizens? And what kind of skills are they going to need to cope with an incredibly challenging future? And I think, for me, they'll need deeper skills. They'll need not just doing music and doing drama and all the rest of it, but they'll need to develop critical thinking, the thing, problem solving. There's going to be so many, so many problems around. So those are the sort of things which I think we should have a, basically an independent national commission to discuss and we should look at what other countries are doing and try and recalibrate our curriculum and, and kind of hedge our bets because we don't know how the future's going to go. And it's all very well saying, oh, we're going to put loads and loads of money into maths and loads of money into coding. Yeah, great. But we should put loads of money into everything else as well because we just can't predict what our kids are going to ha- have to end up doing. And if we um, offered you the same job as Jez, um, maybe in a sort of uh, partnership, uh, made you the education secretary in the uh, Jeffocracy, what would you do? Um, I would endorse everything that Jeff says. Um, Jez, Jez. No, sorry, no, me. Jez, sorry, sorry, Jez. Jez, That's, I'm sure. That is dangerous. I'm sure, I'm you sure, do very well in my administration. I'm sure, I'm, sure Jeff, exactly. I'm sure Jeff agrees with everything Jez exactly. says. Exactly. Um, You'll be a successful so, member of his cabinet. <laughs> I would I would really promote this thing called Oracy, which is being again has been pioneered by School Twenty One and is now I mean, a lot of people are trying it out. I mean, for example, in Camden, there's a lot of Oracy stuff going on, which is trying to encourage people to become really fluent in terms of communication, which is such a crucial skill in life. You know, you can have fantastic qualifications, but if you can't communicate, what's the point? I they sometimes say that about the public school kids, that they, they get this sort of confidence and ability yeah. to do that, that you don't get coming through the States. Well, precisely. The I've just made a film about an amazing school called Torriano. Um, there's lots of schools doing it where they are re- really focusing on the need to be able to, for example, come home from school and tell your parents what you've done that well, day. Well, that would be good. You know, I mean, I actually don't know what my kids get up to a lot of the time. It's probably the no, same I with don't you. And, and it's really inspiring to hear them talk about it and also learn to listen. Mm. So I would do, I would encourage that. I would encourage the baccalaureate model, which is based on competency, not this kind of high stakes grading system. So that's get, just for those people who don't know, that's getting rid of the GCSE. I would get rid of GCSEs. And, and basically you'd work towards a baccalaureate rather at than 18, the A-level. Yeah. The A-levels which, could be part of it. Which, but, which yeah. loads, loads of countries yeah. don't have an exam at yeah. 16. I would get rid of SATs. Uh, I would get rid of baseline testing. I would get rid of the multiplication check. I would get rid of the phonics check. We don't do, need any of this stuff. 
uh, and it's stressing kids out, even really young kids. Um, I would have a national debate. I mean, what we're trying to do is something called the big education conversation. So really, it's in its infancy, but redevelop really at grassroots uh, discussions about education, screenings of countries that are doing it differently. There's a film called Most Likely to Succeed, which is about an amazing chain of schools in the States uh, on the West Coast where, you, where kids just make stuff. They, they have a project, they, they make, for example, a massive great clock with loads of cogs. And then instead of having, you know, some sort of exam at the end of every term, they have a public exhibition and people from that community come in and look at it. And loads of high tech gurus are trying to get their kids into these schools because actually, ironically, they're doing brilliantly in all the kind of conventional tests to get, your, to get into Stanford and get Yale and all the rest of it. So that, that's actually the positive, which is if you adopt this much broader model of education, the huge irony is kids do really, really well in all the conventional exams as well. OK, Madeleine Holt, thank you so much for joining us and giving us all these ideas. And I think she got the job in the Jeffocracy. I, I, I think so. Particularly after she, she agrees with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Right? It was between her and Jez. And, uh... Well, like, you can give them both the job, maybe. No, I'm giving it to Madeleine. So right, she okay. She'll agree with everything I say. <laughs> OK. Uh, accepted. So what do you think? I, th- I think there's just such enormous value in these subjects, but persuading people of that can, can be a hard thing. When I was growing up, you know, nobody's thinking, oh, he'll grow up and be a film director or he'll... Well, there's a arty-farty problem. Yeah, yeah, he'll grow up and be a musician. So when people are thinking about what should be taught in schools, they're thinking about what's going to be practical for when you get a job. And these subjects, perhaps the, the correct amount of weight wasn't put on them. And with the way this the... Is- world is changing know, exactly. and, and the the way that creativity is the thing that sets us apart from what automation will be able to do exactly. it's not just if you're doing drama at school it's not just that you're going to grow up and be the next benedict cumberbatch it's the the stuff that james was saying about empathy it was the stuff that jez was saying about being able to think about problems um cre- creatively uh that that's why there needs to be a focus on these subjects. But people need educating themselves that there there is a value in them. I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it? I, I think that you know when you hear the sort of sense of magic in James's voice about what his school did for him, you know, you just think it's absolutely criminal for us to be thinking, well, we you know those subjects are less important. I mean, it's completely mad. I mean, it just makes no sense at all. Yeah. Um, uh, you know what as he sort of said you know what we got like oscars and this that and the other and you know we're we're renowned around the world for our creative industries and we're like downgrading them i mean like what, what, like where do you even start with that i mean that that is you know this is like a crisis that we've lost you know these drama teachers and less people taking creative subjects you know it's like i, I kind of think if it was happening in you know well, it probably has happened to some extent in science and other things. But, but you know, any country worth its salt be thinking this is a problem. You know, we should be doing something about it. So, I mean, at that you know, first level, you've got to get these creative subjects in. Secondly, I think there is an interesting question, which I suppose came up for me about the extent to which we're still in this, what this head teacher said to me, the industrial age model, you know, separated learning, English, maths, history, not project-based. I think, I think you know, I think there's really... The fact that education doesn't feel that different from 100 years ago in some sense is, is a problem. Yeah. And then thirdly, there's a bit which I'm more mixed about, which is this accountability thing, because I can sort of I, – I, 
I, I can see the problem about too much testing, definitely GCSEs and A-levels. I think, you know, the Labour government in 2004 had a chance to do the so-called baccalaureate system and didn't. The Tomlinson report, it was a report into education. I think I... I think I don't wouldn't want to take away all the accountability, or I, I want to replace it with proper account, you know, with different, a better system of accountability. But I mean, there's a lot that needs to change, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Reasons to be cheerful: a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once; it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So much to talk about in education. If you've got thoughts, you can find us at Cheerful Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. You can email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com or you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. We've had an email sort of on the subject of education from Amma from Reading. Hyde and Jeff, firstly, love the podcast. I'm roping in as many of my conservative friends, including my parents, to give it a listen. If you could shout out Dr. Frida and Sylvester from Surrey, they die of happiness. We've just done it. Shout out Dr. Frida and Sylvester. From that's Surrey. a lot of responsibility if they're going to die of happiness. Yeah, I think that's a sort of met- metaphor. Anyway, just listen to episode 19. There's a young black woman of Ghanaian descent who's passionate about the education sector and the lack of diversity in the curriculum. I was super pumped to hear you discuss the lack of knowledge in the curriculum about the colonial era. That was in a discussion with Glenn Moore a couple of weeks back. I've always thought it odd we jumped from Henry VIII to World War One and Two, and then American history, JFK, etc. I feel as though a real focus could be on the gap, such as apartheid migration of the empire post-World War Two, the empire both good and bad, and also the history of the places that were colonised. What was Ghana's political structure before colonisation? Who were the Maharaja and what were their empires like before colonial rule? I feel as though seeing these countries as great in their own right before British rule can demonstrate to people that these countries existed before discovery and had a deep, rich culture before colonialism. Sorry, this is super ranty. So I have a question for you both. If you could both design your dream curriculum, what would you have as compulsory subjects? I would have intersectional feminism for beginners as a compulsory GCSE subject, how to identify fake news 101, 
but I'll probably teach how Stormzy is better than Mozart. Kidding. Everyone knows Bach was the real OG. Anyway, thanks for all you're doing, guys. I'm really into this idea of project learning. Yeah. I was thinking about it as we were talking, and like you could do a great Beatles project, which of course is about the Beatles, but then you've got history of Irish immigration and Liverpool and the sort of uh, really the industrial point. revolution and technology. I mean, there's loads of things you can really spin off from any subject. Point. And also imagine saying to, to young people, we're going to do a Beatles project where we learn all these things. Yeah. Rather than you know, here's some disconnected facts I want you to learn. Yeah. So what would you, what would yours be then? The history of the Boston Red Sox. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, um, class struggle. The <laughs> the more arcane rules. I'll think about you. I'll get back yeah, to you. Do. This comes from Purjeet, who says, Dear Ed and Jeff, um, my husband and I enjoy listening to the podcast. We both feel better informed and generally more cheerful afterwards. I appreciated your mini segue into Empire at the end of the last podcast. I'm a British Asian. My parents are from the Indian side of Punjab and studied history up to degree level. Yet at no point was I taught or given an opportunity to learn an informed, objective history of empire. I've only recently, at the age of 33, properly read up on the negative aspects of Britain's legacy in India, um, mainly by reading Shashi Kapoor's Inglorious Empire. There are still huge gaps in my knowledge when it comes to Britain's relationship with the rest of the empire. I generally think Brits only have the vaguest understanding of what their ancestors got up to. But after reading Shashi Kapoor's book, I felt a loss for the country India could and might have been if it hadn't been for British intervention. I think it's a good idea. I mean, it was just a passing comment we made, really. When I we know, and it's really been picked up by people. I mean, I suppose it. to be sort of self-critical for a second, and there is a sort of there is a kind of tension, isn't there? Because at one level, part of our foregoing discussion about education has been about, um, you know, how do we make it more uh, sort of project based, not just learning facts and so on. And yet, there's also this. We also both of us hanker for, you know, a sense but of no national reason identity. You couldn't and, learn this stuff in within projects. That correct, correct. That's yeah. true. Um, Perjit says, on a completely separate note, I'd love to hear a podcast about the growing divide in attainment for rich and poor students at school. Well, I guess, you know, we've, yeah. we've done an education topic on this week's podcast, but there's, we were just saying when the microphones were switched off, there's a lot more we can come back to on this. Definitely. Uh, next, let's talk about sortition. Uh, Chris Towner from South Bucks, UK. Okay, guys, your sortition episode is simply mind-glowingly brilliant. That's episode 20. Never before have I felt so optimistic that the future is bright and orange. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> Having been struggling to believe anything could bring the country back together in a productive political direction, it feels like this could be the single most important priority for us right now. So the next question to the answer is, how can we insist that methods such as sortition and informed polling can be the required approach to revive UK democracy? Do we need judicial intervention to force its implementation? Or do we need to march on the streets and demand it? We need a next step. Discuss. Well, I thought what you said last week was was good, was which was take the NHS and the social care, for example, like a cross party um, thing could be set up to do some deliberative democracy and, and um, public consultation on it in this way. And if people see it work, and if people understand how it's happening, and it's not being um, fixed by uh, vested interests, then they would have faith in it. It's, it's, I think we need to think about the way to design it so it gets big buy-in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I think if you just did it 
in an obscure way and then came up with an answer, people would say, well, so it's like you need a... Well, you'd need to make a big deal out of it, out of it you know, that we want to give power back to the people. This is how it's been I mean, maybe Channel here. 4 or something could do a, you know, for example, could do a big thing on it, yeah. you know, how to... But, you you know, I think it's I do think it's worth thinking about. I think you should hold me to account for trying to push this forward. Great. We'll check in on your progress. Yeah. yeah. Um, this comes from Adam, who says, Dear Ed and Jeff, I thought the episode addressing participatory democracy was the most inspiring thus far. I grew up watching enormous and possibly unhealthy quantities of Star Trek, Stargate, Star Wars, and other star-themed programming, stars in the rise maybe. Each of these excellent programs portrayed a wide variety of models of democracy for their strengths and pitfalls. The ability of our society to debate as a democracy is something I worry about regularly. Many of my liberal friends struggle to even hear the viewpoints of those on the centre-right and cannot tolerate people with different views. This really worries me for the health of our debates as a society. People with differing views are simply dismissed as the out-group and ignored. As an NHS trainee therapist, uh, cognitive behavioural therapy, it's often my job to commit to temporarily taking on the perspective of others to help them realise ways forward. Often I meet people I don't agree with, but generally everyone you encounter is nice even Tory voters. I see participatory democracy as a route to overcoming these erroneous political party lines and to actually have a sensible discussion. And he adds, you guys rock. <laughs> I wasn't going to read that. Oh, yeah, out. come on. Um, well, look, sortition definitely got people talking, didn't mm. it? Who, who, who knew? Um, right, uh, next, prisons. That got people talking too. Dear Ed and Jeff, as a criminal barrister, I particularly loved your recent podcast on prisons. When I listened to Nils Olberg, sorry, that's... That's Nils Erberg. Speak about prison policy and Sweden's prison system. I almost wept for the lost potential for offenders here in the UK. It was like being in a sweetie shop of possibility. That's what our podcast is, a sweetie shop of possibility. Yeah, we should put that ever, in the description. Exactly. description. Uh, so says Cathy. As ever, it's not about how much money is invested in locking people up but where these results could be better spent. When I meet families of people sent to prison, they often acknowledge they will be the first conde to condemn offenders they read about in newspapers, but when it's their own family member, friend, they realise acutely how pointless prison is. Keep on doing those podcasts. It's one of the only things keeping me from insanity. And then I have, um, have a couple of photographs here. They've been sent to us by Britt Arand, who says, my granddaughter Aurora is my biggest reason to be cheerful. And then uh, Britt has sent a couple of pictures of Aurora, who's um, a couple of years old, wearing a Reasons to be Cheerful t-shirt. I mean, she's, she's a cherub. Definitely. And um, if you too would like to appear cherubic, get your Reasons to be Cheerful t-shirts and tote bags and hoodies and so on. And if you want any of that stuff, we've made an easy-to-remember link for you it's bit.ly stroke cheerful merch send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerful podcast and here to pitch ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful we're joined by comedian alice fraser hello hello how are you hello i'm, I'm well thank you for for coming am i right in thinking that you're of a legal background yes i used to be a lawyer Okay. Bearing in mind that a lot of what I imagine a lawyer's life looks like, I have got by osmosis from American legal programs. LA Law. Yeah, Boston Legal, all mm. those things. I mean, LA McBeal. Yes. I mean, would you be funny in your kind of closing statements and stuff? Um, no, I was, I was only a solicitor, so I was never 
a barrister, but uh, I did find out some really interesting things about working in a corporate space. Like if you're in a glass office, uh, you can turn your back to all of the glass walls to cry, but you'll fog up the glass. <laughs> really? So uh, you got to be good, careful. That's a good one to bear in mind. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever have that experience at Absolute Radio? Yeah, I had my little places where I could go and uh, cry. <laughs> Without steaming it up. Yeah. I mean, often on public transport on the way home. Mm, yeah. was, it was a big favourite of mine. Um, so you've brought in some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. Yes. Uh, what is, what's your first one? Okay, so this is something that I think we could bring in and it would make everybody a lot happier, is instead of having an age of consent, you have sex licences, like oh. driving licences. So you have to apply for your learner's permit, <laughs> first couple of years, zero blood alcohol. You just got to gotta do it. You have a supervisor in the car with you at all times uh, and then you get, you know, you like go a up se- your level. a sex instructor. Yeah, but like the, the, no, just to, to observe so that you can get your license. Okay, and then but at do you have to levels, do you have to have lessons as as well though? No, no, no. I think you just have to pass tests. Right. So, so you don't have to have a certain number of hours under your belt. Right. You just have so to, to achieve. No pun intended. <laughs> but you know how when you go in, I don't know if you do it here, but you go in for your, your L's test and you have to just pass a test, basic questions. Yeah. Um, I remember one very distinct one when I was doing my learner driver's test was, uh, if you see a horse, do you A, accelerate towards the horse, B, honk at the horse to warn it, or C, drive carefully past the horse? <laughs> <laughs> Where did you grow up? Uh, in Australia. Was it in the middle of nowhere? Was it specific to... Sounds a bit Crocodile Dundee-ish. I mean, it is a little bit. Uh, in Sydney, where I did my driver's test, everyone does their practising of their L-plates near near a park, Centennial right. Park, which is in the centre. They've now banned learner drivers from because it was just full of people driving very <laughs> slowly into trees. Uh, but uh, there were horses also in I that park, Jeff so I think... I trying to neatly steer away from the sex license. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'll tell you what, I just remembered, actually. Didn't you... Let's go, talk about driving When tests. you were a teenager, well, Ed, oh, well, this doesn't me. apply to your well, sex well, life. Well, didn't, didn't you go on television to decry Crocodile Dundee? No. I'm sure you told me a story about... Uh, you used to go on a local London. I think team. it was radio, and it was Indiana Jones. Actually. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, but uh, other than that, we'll you're bang that. on. Say um, <laughs> No, I'm not. I'm not being like this. Is not lascivious or prurient no. or anything. Mm. I just think this is one of the few areas of life where you can genuinely ruin somebody's life if you don't do it properly, yes. like driving, uh, and yet it's completely unregulated. Yeah, would you have to wear an L plate? Yes. Until you passed your test. Yes, on your junk. <laughs> <laughs> I just had the image of a man at a bar sort of leaning his arm on a bar and flicking out like a like a license and being like, hey, baby, I'm qualified. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. I think some people need it. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we've learned. I mean, if you don't need it, you don't need it. But if you need it, you really need it. Right. Okay. All right. Um, Ed, do you think that policy would? Yeah, I buy it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's make it happen. Yeah. All right. What do you have next? Uh, the next thing I, I had was uh, a young adult swap. So there are more and more people of, like, particularly my generation who are living with their parents until, you know, their 30s uh, in order, you know, to save money or what have you. But living with your parents until your 30s is a deeply unnatural state of affairs. You're biologically you're required quite, to uh, interesting. go off on a motorbike in your teens. So it just gets more and more tense and some people figure it out and other people don't. But I think, you know, instead of moving out and, you know, building more houses and kind of having to deal with all of those issues, you could just swap 
Just swap with someone else's parents. Because you, your parents, your other people's parents won't get on your nerves like your own parents yeah. will and vice versa. And vice versa. And you'll be nicer. You'll be less, you know, sort of pushed back into the box of your own teenage rebellion. I like that. Yeah. And, you, and you, you know, you, it's you, interesting you should say this because there is this scheme to um, put uh, young people who need somewhere to stay with older people, some of whom might have you know, mental health issues or dementia or whatever mm. to, to get, and it's sort of To started, make sure they don't have to go into a home for Yeah, them. yeah, to so they can stay in their home longer. Yes. And it seems to be quite, you know, popular. Yeah, and I, I think we we miss cross-generational and cross-age friendships these days. Like in school you're kind of put at the same level as people of your same age and you don't have that sense of, like, responsibility for younger people or looking up to older people. Yeah. That, I miss that. And you also get to feel like you're the funds in somebody else's house. Yeah. But don't yeah. you think it's – the only thing I say, admittedly my kids are seven and eight, they're so not moving out yet, is I think the one <laughs> thing I feel is that it's quite good for the – because empty nesting tends to be quite traumatic for the parents. And the oh, You're not thing, worried about that already, are you? Not, no, you know, I worry about lots of things. <laughs> but the, the, the thing is that this sort of is quite good because it's a sort of counterpoint to empty nest. So when you say to people who've got grown-up kids these days – you know, oh, are you feeling worried about being empty nested? Like, no, because they've not moved out. You know, it's quite a nice Yeah, exactly thing. that. The, the, you have someone in the home. But you really want other people's children rather than your own, I suppose. But, but a lot of a lot of people feel like, you know, there's, they're stuck in this weird hinterland between being kids and being adults because they can't afford to get on the property ladder or move out or whatever. Mm. And, and this, this would be a step towards solving that a little bit, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. all of the benefits of living with your parents without any of the living with your parents part. I mean, some yes. people are stuck between being kids and adults, even living in their own home in Stoke Newington, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Did I ever tell you the story about when I first moved from up north to London I used to go back at the weekends and my mum would insist that I brought my laundry with me so I I had a flat in Manchester that I kept for the first little while I lived in London and I'd get the train from London to Manchester my mum would stand on the platform in Macclesfield and when the train pulled in you know I'd put the window down I'd pass the laundry out the window and then when I was coming back on a Sunday evening she'd be standing there with it washed and ironed are you serious? <laughs> yeah did you not even get out to have a cup of tea with her? No, there was no time. <laughs> Where were you on your way to? Yeah, I was just going to hang out with friends and things. You know how trains work, you, so know, you there's coming, another one that You were comes. coming back from London. Yeah, so I was working in London, living yeah. in London, but I kept my flat in Manchester you'd get, at first. So you'd get to... So I'd, uh, the train would go through Macclesfield. My mum would be waiting there on the platform. Yeah. Because, you know, she, she would tell me that she wanted to keep her hand in at being a parent. Yeah. Like it felt sad to her to have me move to London. So yeah. she felt like, you know, she was actively participating in my life by being handed dirty laundry. And then... So um, you wouldn't get out, the train would carry on to Manchester. Yeah. So that, then I'd carry on to Manchester. I'd go out for the weekend with friends. When I was on the way back to be back in time for work on a Monday, she'd be waiting on the platform with the washing. Um, and you thought that the smell of your dirty shirts was sufficient <laughs> presence of her son in her life? I think she justify. thought that. They would also sometimes, they'd come and visit me in London and she'd take the laundry back up north with her and then post it to me in a big box to work and turn up at work. And be I like, slightly wonder whether we should edit this bit out because it reflects badly on you. <laughs> I, I was much younger. We all made How mistakes in our youth. Yeah. Uh, just before Last I got year. married, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you not even, like, say, I'll stop and have a cup of tea or... No, it's the last train back. <laughs> Should we move on? Yes, I felt please. it was appropriate to the idea. Yeah, it, it was some way. It was some way relevant. You don't think it was relevant? 
No, I think it is. It is we, relevant. We've got, be, we've got to be non-judgmental about him. I oh, think. I've I've judged. You think you've judged? <laughs> I've kind of ju- well. Let's pretend to be non-judgmental. <laughs> um, supposed to be a safe space. You see this space. Yeah. yeah, my my reason to be cheerful or suggestion that would make the world better is if nobody ever does that. Yeah, that's good. That's true. <laughs> I, I I totally endorse that idea. Don't do this at home. Don't. Yeah. Do not. I mean, you're obviously an expert yes. operator in this system. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. I like to, a pioneer, I would say. You're a qualified stuntman. Yes, yes. Did you? Um, all right. Since so, so you're so keen to move on, um, did you have another idea? Uh, my other di- idea is uh, it's an interesting thing just coming over to the UK because I don't think sports is as big a thing here as it is in Australia. So how long have you been here? I go back and forth. Right. Okay. So this time round, I've been here since November. Right. And and you've noticed that Australians are more passionate about sports. Just that the conversation doesn't happen here in Australia. And there are no the, sex licenses here either. Yeah, that's true. Do you true. have those in Australia? No, we do you? don't. No, you don't. Uh, right. But uh, there's a lot of unlicensed sex people right. around. I uh, <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, what I mean is that here uh, it seems a nonsensical thing to go. What's your sport? Yes. What everyone in Australia, or for, for most people, have a sport that they played at high school or they're What's still en- engaged in. I, I did rowing and then athletics. Oh, so, so not just as a spectator. So you're not just talking about spectators and being fans. You're talking no, about active participation. I'm talking about active participation. Right. I think Maybe everyone. It's a British thing of sort of not being sporty. There's quite a lot of people. Yes, I think there's a not, not sort of just like and just not sporty in Britain. Yes, and I think everyone should be a bit sporty. Yeah. Or ginger. Or baby, or posh. <laughs> and you just pick one and stick with it. I think. Stick with it. I mean, I just, Jeff is like scary. Jeff's sport is the three thousand meter steeplechase. But apart from that, he's not that sporty. <laughs> well, just finding something that you like doing. I think uh, it really is an underrated thing. Having having this is slightly more serious and less comedic, but just having something that you do with your body to whatever capacity you're able. I think it makes. So a big I've difference. never found anything that I like doing with my body apart from <laughs> like sitting horizontally. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so it's slumping. I really like slumping, but aside from that, I've never found a physical sporty activity that I've uh, that I've enjoyed. Are you, you sporty though? You do? You no, do. I'm really. Not. You do your jogging, your slow jogging. <laughs> no, Very rubber inanimate object. Borderline fast walking. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not sporty, but I think, I think, yeah, I, I think it is because also I think it makes you more cheerful. Actually, it does, and and particularly. For younger people, just knowing where the edges of your body are, what you're capable of, it makes you feel safer so do you walking still around. Do rowing? Uh, no, I, I broke my back. Uh, oh, no. But uh, back. well, fractured it. But it's more dramatic Ro- when you say broke. Uh, on on the river, I was hit oh with a, by a boat with another boat. Oh my um, god! That was a very cool. small fracture, but it does sound very oh, dramatic. Uh, but then I, I still run a bit and I just go to the gym. But I just. It's one of those things. I think if you feel like you've Is it the outdoorsiness of Australia? You see, I confess that I made these New Year's resolutions, which Jeff sort of laughed at and he was right to, about doing more exercise and so on, and I've completely failed. Well, your big thing is about the weather, though, isn't it? Well, I think it's just when it gets dark at four o'clock. I mean, it's just so depressing, really, isn't it? Yeah. You know, so I sort of feel that because it's getting a little lighter a bit later, I sort of feel a bit more motivated that maybe I'll do some... You could become an octambulator. You what? Sorry, the people who walk round in the dead of night. Really? Yeah, that's mm. that's a thing. Does that not appeal in the long dark winter months, skulking around under the cover of darkness? Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Do you? So how do you get over that in Britain? I I don't know. I just think you need to. I but think it's one of the. Ex- I mean, you do you go running at night? Do you? 
No, I'll go in the daytime, uh, but then I'm in control of my own hours because I'm a comedian. Uh, but I think it's something to do. It's one of those things when you're not doing it, it seems insane. Like it's something that you couldn't no, possibly fit right into your schedule. And when you're doing it, you think, how does not everybody do 20 this? 20 minutes less on Twitter or... And that know. sounds horrendous. Or just be on Twitter but on a Stairmaster, you know? <laughs> Feel like you're climbing towards the insults. I think you're right about this. Yeah. You're right about this. Um, if people want to come and see you, I mean, you're over here for a while. Are you going to be doing Edinburgh? What's the what's the I plan? am. I'm going to be doing Edinburgh. I'm doing the live bugle on the 22nd of February at Leicester Square Theatre. This is Andy Zaltzman's Andy Zaltzman's podcast. podcast. He's our finest satirist, I think. He's he's brilliant and yeah. very prolific. And it's one of those great things where I was a fan for many years, and then I got to be on the podcast. And it's a do you swear on this podcast? Yeah. It's a it. fucking delight. Uh, I really enjoy it very much. And also I'm on Twitter and doing various things in the next few weeks, but I can't remember them. So find cool. me on Twitter. Great. Alice Fraser, thanks thank, so much. Thanks so much for coming along. Thanks so much for having me. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, here we are in the outro. Oh, we're in the outro. <laughs> oh. Do you think it's gotten uncomfortably hot in here today? Well, your wife said it had. Well, your wife said it was like a sort of college dorm. Yeah, we're we're uncomfortable. It's like a sauna. It's fine. Here. I'm perfectly happy. You, you're very hot blooded, though, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Yes. I am. I'm very hot blooded and passionate, <laughs> particularly around you. Thank you. And you're feeling particularly hot blooded and passionate because your mother in law's here. She is, and she she was very excited to meet you. She, she came was. up she's, during the recording of the show. She's Sweet lovely. Podcast. She's so lovely, Lynn Barron. And she's given you uh, presents for your sons. She has Chicago Cubs t shirts. How do you feel about that as a, as a fan of Boston teams? I feel really good about it, actually, because the Cubs were, after the Red Sox reversed the curse and won the World Series in 2004, the Cubs were the people with the longest run of not winning the World Series, like 100 years or something. And they've just won it, uh, I think, a year, year before last. So, you know, they've they kind of, we like the Cubbies. Okay, so you're happy to pass yeah, these yeah, to yeah, They won't yeah, be going yeah, into yeah. a skip as you leave here. No, 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 definitely not. And I thought she was really nice. I think you're incredibly lucky to have her as a mother-in-law. I love my mother-in-law too, but you've also got a lovely mother-in-law. And I think you'll be seeing more of Lynn Barron because she's coming to Liverpool with us. If you're listening to this the day it's released, Monday the 19th, of February we're going to be in Liverpool tonight we'd love for you to come along uh, you can get tickets at bit.ly stroke cheerful Liverpool definitely and if you're listening after Monday sorry you missed it but you'll be hearing at this the live episode uh, at some point uh, in the next few weeks Thanks to our guests, James Graham, Jez Bennett and Madeline Holt and comedian Alice Fraser. Um, Emma Corsham produced our podcast with backup and research from Alex Feisbrice and Lindsay Todd. James Deacon did our idents. Ed C did our music. Gail Lofthouse was our announcer. And Emily Power did our artwork. I think that's everyone, isn't it? Didn't you think I did that well? well? Remarkably well, yeah. You weren't even working you were for notes. You were quite speechless, weren't you? Yeah. We'll, we'll, it's we'll, only taken me 22 weeks. We'll cover that in your appraisal. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. He's been faking his school reports. He's been showing solidarity with Nicaragua. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.